morning. So, uh, this is our first Sunday in 2021. I'm sure that um, many of us are excited about that, right? 2020, uh, it was a hard year uh, from racial injustice to political and societal division to a global pandemic to economic trouble to social isolation to more virtual meetings and virtual classes that I'm sure most of us would ever want. There was a lot of pain and death and loss in the past 12 months. And that's just speaking in broad, general categories. That doesn't necessarily even touch on the personal, specific hardships that some of us have gone through. So it's no wonder then that 2021 is a welcome sight. A new year can come with fresh hope. A new year can feel like a fresh start. But if we're honest, we know that we're not guaranteed from pain and trouble just because we moved from December 31st, 2020 to January 1st, 2021. Some hurts and trials, they've actually come with us into the new year. They didn't just go away. And since we live in a fallen, broken world, we shouldn't be surprised if and when we experience still more trials in the days to come. So yes, hopefully we experience more peace and more unity and more health in 2021, and we should pray for and work toward those things. But as Christians, we know that trials, which God uses for our good, will surely come our way. So while we can, I think, celebrate that 2020 is over, we made it, our ultimate hope, our ultimate security, our ultimate rest, our ultimate trust can't be placed just in a new year in 2021. It was never meant to carry that weight. It cannot bear it. It will let us down. So where should we go? To whom should we turn? Well, this morning we're going to focus on Psalm 19. Uh, C.S. Lewis said of the psalm, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. It can make me a little nervous to preach it. <laughs> um, but it is here in this psalm that we're pointed to our true hope, Yahweh. And we're called to listen to and long for and trust and obey his must-have word. So we're going to work through the psalm in three points. Creation's speech, that's point one. Yahweh's word, that's point two. And then point three will be our response. So let's look at that first point, creation's speech. So in, in Psalm 19, one to six, David tells us that creation continually proclaims a message, but it does so without using words. We might call it nonverbal communication. Uh, this is something that we all do, that we all experience every day of our lives. Uh, here are some examples. So if you sigh and lower your head, you might be communicating that you're sad or tired or annoyed. You didn't use words, but you said something. If you yawn or you look around when somebody's talking to you, you might be communicating that you're bored uh, by what they have to say. If you're speaking with someone and they smile, it could communicate that what you just said was funny. They thought it was funny. If they furrow their brow, you know, furrow their brow, it could communicate that what you just said was upsetting. You might need to backtrack. Uh, if they tilt their head, you know, like tilt their head, it could communicate that what you just said was confusing. Maybe it didn't make sense. 
or maybe it was thought-provoking. If they back up from you, it could communicate that you're standing too close or maybe you need to take a breath mint. One of my favorite examples of this is one that the kids and the students in the room might be able to relate to. When you're in a public place and you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing and your mom or dad turns to you and gives you like the look, you know, the, the icy stare that says, stop it right now. Like, they're communicating something to you and they didn't even have to say anything. You know what it means, though, when you get that look. These are ways that we communicate non-verbally. Well, creation is doing that. And one of the ways that we hear it, one of the ways that we witness it, is just by looking up. So look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The words translated declare and proclaims here are both participles in the original language that signifies ongoing action. So it means that David is not saying that the heavens declared the glory of God in the past and then they ceased doing so. David is not saying that the sky proclaimed God's handiwork at one point long ago and then it stopped. No, he's telling us that the heavens keep on declaring the glory of God. They continue declaring how powerful and awesome he is. The sky keeps on proclaiming God's handiwork. It keeps on pointing to its maker and its sustainer. And David further states in verse 2, day after day or day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. I, I love how um, Dale Ralph Davis uh, speaks about this. Here's what he says. This cosmic preaching goes on repeatedly. Verse 2 reinforces the point, especially with its first verb, pours out, associated with the idea of bubbling up or out. The heavens and skies are simply bursting to tell us of their maker and keep pumping out their testimony about him. That's what's happening. We witness it when we simply look up. And we can bear witness to this, uh, right? So day after day, de depending on the weather and where you're located, you can look up into the heavens and see a beautiful ocean of blue. You can see the clouds and try to imagine their different objects or animals. You can at times even faintly see the moon. And perhaps most clearly of all, and we'll come back to this in a minute, you can see the sun. Though you definitely shouldn't stare at it, uh, but you can, you can see it, you can, you can feel its presence. And, and night after night, and again, depending on the weather and your location, you can look at the sky above and witness new wonders, gain new knowledge that's not available to you in the daytime. You can see distant stars, maybe even things like comets and other planets. You can get a glimpse of the wonderful, awesome, massive universe that we're a part of, that God has created. And, and what, what are all these things saying? What is it they're, that they're communicating? Well, the, the heavens, the sky, day and night, they're proclaiming that God, their maker, is powerful, awesome, glorious. But notice what David says in verse 3 to the middle of verse 4. He says, There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's possible to translate verse 3 like the, the version that I just read from translates it, the English Standard Version. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In that case, David may be saying that creation's speech, what it's saying is inescapable. Everybody hears it. But a better translation may be there is no speech nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Now, if, if that's the case, David may be emphasizing the paradoxical truth 
that while its voice is inaudible, we can't actually hear words, creation's cry is global. It has a voice, it ex- and it extends to the world. Uh, James Luther Mays, he comments on this, and, and what he says, I think, may help us connect with what's going on here. I like the way that he puts it. He says, It is all very mysterious and marvelous. The visible becomes vocal. Seeing is experienced as hearing. The imagination is in the midst of an unending concert sung by the universe to the glory of God. It's amazing, isn't it? God created the universe. He made the heavens and the sky above. He made the day and the night. And all of it, everything, continually points back to him. And we get to witness it happen. David gives us, gives us a specific example in the last part of verse 4 through verse 6. He says, In them, the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Uh, uh, Commentator uh, Peter Craigie helps us understand what David's getting at. He says, sunrise is like a bridegroom going forth from his chamber implying either the groom's emergence from the, cha- from the chamber in which the marriage was conducted or from the nuptial chamber on the morning following the wedding. Sunrise is also like a warrior or hero who in his vigor rejoices to run and exercises strength. During the course of a day, the sun passes from one end of the heavens to the other, shedding its heat on all that lies beneath it. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, given this, I think that we should regularly take time to consider what's around us, to think about the universe that we live in and and listen to what it's saying. Just consider the sun. Here are four quick facts about it. Um, I got these from a site called space.com if you're interested. So one, the sun, it's really far away. The sun is about 93 million miles away from our planet. It's a long way. Uh, Two, it's really hot. The the visible part of the sun, the site says, is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, while temperatures in the core reach more than 27 million Fahrenheit, driven by nuclear reactions. One would need to explode 100 billion tons of dynamite every second to match the energy produced by the sun, according to NASA. Like, I don't know about you, those numbers are so big, like, they, they almost don't even mean anything to me. They're so big. I just read that and, and, and think, wow, that's really hot. <laughs> like, that's really, really powerful, right? Like, we, we can't even fathom this. Three, the sun is really, really big, it's, it's roughly 109 times the dyna- diameter of the earth. About one million earths could fit inside the sun. That's huge. But also, this is another paradox, it's really, really small. The sun is one of more than 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. That's just the Milky Way. And David tells us that this sun, this distant, hot, massive, yet small sun, is joyfully declaring the glory of God. There were some in David's day who worshipped the sun, but that's not what it or any other created thing was made for. No, it was made to testify about and point to its creator. And so we can and we should, as observers, listen in and marvel. Not, not, not at the sun or any other created thing. Our wonder should not stop there. But we should wonder at the God that the sun and all created things point to. But here's the thing. As good as the information the heavens and the sky above give us about God 
It's not enough information. So it is good. It does tell us of a creator, but the information is incomplete. They don't tell us about the creator. They don't tell us how we can have a relationship with the creator. We need more information. Uh, Alec Motier, he puts it this way. So then as we listen to the unspeaking voice of the natural world, we hear a confused babble, a question rather than an answer. What is the creator really like? It's time then that Isaac Watts taught us to sing a different song. The heavens declare thy glory, Lord, and every star thy wisdom shines. But when our eyes behold thy word, we read thy name in fairer lines. That brings us to our second point, Yahweh's word. So notice that the, the title uh, that I chose for that point, it's not God's word. Now, it's not that that would have been wrong or a bad thing to do, but the term translated God in verse 1 of Psalm 19, it's, it's the word El in Hebrew. That's not the term that David uses throughout the rest of the psalm. He instead uses the name Yahweh, which in, in, in our Bibles is likely translated Lord in all caps. That's how you can tell when the term is used. Yahweh is the personal name for God by which he revealed himself to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. In verse 15 there, he says, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God came near to his people and worked out his people's redemption, and in so doing gave them his name, Yahweh. Alec Motier, he comments on the significance of this name change in our psalm this morning. He says this, The silent word of nature declares God. Behind the word of Scripture stands Yahweh, the covenant God of grace and redemption. In these next few verses, David refers to Yahweh's word with six parallel terms, the first of which is Torah, it's translated law in the version that I'm reading from, the English Standard Version, but it could also be translated instruction. It, that word, and, and all of the terms that he's going to use to refer to God's word, it, it has in mind, Torah has in mind, not just the Ten Commandments, not just the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but all of Yahweh's instruction all of Yahweh's revealed will, all of Yahweh's revelation to us. I like the way that uh, Kevin DeYoung talks about this. He says, certainly David had in mind the Torah. It most particularly referred to the first five books of Moses. David is thinking of more than that. He's extolling the virtues of God's self-disclosure, of God's communication to us through stories, poetry, prophecy, and every other kind of speech act. Even though it's not talking about the 66 books of our Bible, this is a fair way of talking about our Bible. When David talks about these words, these precious words, yes, he's thinking of the words in his day. Remember, he wouldn't have had the 66 books of our Bible at this time. He's thinking of the words in his day, but we know as Revelation progresses that the Gospels and the prophets and the epistles are now part of this so that, so that these words of David can be our words about this book, Yahweh's instruction. We hold it in our hands. It is this book, these 66 books. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at the specific ways that David does describe Yahweh's word. First, this is verse 7. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law or instruction of Yahweh is perfect or blameless. Now, perfect, blameless here, it has the idea of being complete. It means that there's nothing lacking in this word. It's not missing anything. In the Bible, God has given us everything we need to live a life that is pleasing to him. 
And, and it, this word, it revives the soul. Just like Yahweh restores or revives my soul in Psalm 23.3, so here his instruction is like a cold glass of water when you're desperately in need of a drink. It's reviving. It's life-giving. And second, verse 7, the testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. Now, Testimony here may refer to the Ten Commandments as it does in uh, Exodus 31, 18. Um, but as Alec Motier points out, it can also refer to, he says, what Yahweh testifies to about himself and about his truth. His Torah, the first part of verse 7, is his teaching. His testimony is his personal authority, his vouching for his teaching. Either way, the testimony of Yahweh is sure. It's trustworthy. You don't need to worry about whether or not it's true or whether or not it's right. It is a sure word, and it makes wise the simple, referring to the naive or the inexperienced. Not only does Yahweh's word give you knowledge, we learn facts when we read Scripture, it does more than that. It doesn't just give you knowledge, but it enables you to rightly apply the knowledge that you gain. If you come to Yahweh's word with a heart that is ready to receive, with a humble, teachable heart, it enables you to, to, to gain knowledge and rightly apply what you learn to avoid harmful paths and keep you from error and destruction. So the word is reviving. It's life-giving. It brings knowledge to the simple. Third, verse 8, the precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, precepts here refers to Yahweh's commands or requirements or directions, and David says they are right, or another way to say it would be straight, uh, one commentator, Jared, Gerald Wilson, he helps explain what this means. He says, The directions provided by God's Torah are not misleading, but are straight and do not lead astray. Again, the present characterization grows out of the preceding two. Because God's word and Torah is whole and complete, it is also reliable and trustworthy. And thus, it can provide undeviating guidance to life. This guidance is not viewed as restrictive, but gives joy to the heart. Yes, for, for Christians, Yahweh's precepts are delightful. They aren't burdensome. They aren't buzzkills or joy stealers. No, they are precepts. They are directions from our good, wise loving, faithful God, and we must see them as such. His commandments are not burdensome. Fourth, verse 8, the commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. Yahweh's commandment, notice that uh, it's singular there, it's not plural, it's not commandments, it's commandment. It refers broadly to everything that Yahweh requires. And his commandment is pure, that is, it contains no evil whatsoever. And it enlightens the eyes. Now here, David may have something in mind like what's described in 1 Samuel 14. There, uh, and we won't go into the whole story, but there, a man named Jonathan eats some honey in a forest. And in verse 27 of 1 Samuel 14, the text says that his eyes became bright. So what happened? He enters this forest, he sees honey, he, he, he eats the honey, and his eyes become bright. That is his vitality, his strength was renewed when he got this food, when he got this honey. Yahweh's commandment, Yahweh's word is like that. It renews our strength when we feed on it. Fifth, verse 9, 
The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. Now, it's possible here that David shifts from giving a term describing Yahweh's word to instead talk about what it is that Yahweh's word produces, fear or reverence. Uh, Again, Gerald Wilson, he unpacks this helpfully. He says, rather than continuing a list of characteristics of Torah, the psalmist apparently begins to bring the response of the faithful into view by inserting a clear reference to the enduring blessing of the fear of Yahweh that purifies the faithful. The adjective tahora can mean pure, clean, genuine. So the fear of Yahweh is clean. But, Wilson continues, it often has the more specific connotation be culturally clean. So clean versus unclean, clean in that sense. He continues, if fear of the Lord results in cultic purity and the consequent ability to stand in the presence of Yahweh forever, this is strong encouragement for the faithful listener to adopt this most appropriate attitude. The word of Yahweh instills in us fear, rightful fear of the Lord. And this fear is clean, clean as in clean versus unclean. And, and this cleanliness that the word brings us, that the word gives us, enables us to stand in the presence of Yahweh forever. It endures forever. This is what the word does. Sixth, verse nine. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. Here, rules refers to Yahweh's judgments. You might translate it rulings. The rulings of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. His rulings about what is right. And David says that Yahweh's rules, his judgments, his rulings are true. They are reliable. They are righteous altogether. Now, possibly still connected with his words about Yahweh's rules here in the last part of verse 9, David continues, and he, he sums up, in a sense, everything that he said about Yahweh's instruction in verse 10. He says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the dripping and drippings of the honeycomb. Yahweh's word, his instruction, his testimony, his precepts, his commandment, his rules, his word is better than wealth. If you had to choose between riches and Yahweh's word, the psalm is telling us that you would be out of your mind not to choose his word every single time, every day of the week. Yahweh's word is sweeter than honey. I don't know about you, it may be one of those things, either you love it or you hate it, but I really like honey. And, and, and this, this word, Psalm 19, is telling us when you eat honey or choose whatever the, the best sweet treat you can think of is, when you eat that and experience the goodness, the sweetness of it, David's saying Yahweh's word is better than that. Yahweh's word is sweeter than that. It is incomparable. I, I love, love how Del Ralph Davis reflects on this. And this is actually where the, the title of the sermon today comes from. Uh, listen to what he says. Now that we've looked at these individual statements about Yahweh's word in verses 7 to 9, we need to say that David is not so interested in our analyzing such statements. What I mean is that David is not trying to get you to distinguish testimony from precepts or commandment from rulings. Rather, he wants to build up for you a total picture of Yahweh's true, reliable, soul-renewing, life-preserving, joy-inducing, energy-giving word that will hit you like a ton of bricks and make you say something like verse 10. David moves from describing the character of God's word, verses 7 to 9, to expressing the desirability of God's word, verse 10. He doesn't just want you to see what Yahweh's word is like. He wants you to say, I must have it. 
That's what's happening. So may it be so with us. Moving into a new year, may we not sit back on our heels and just blindly hope that 2021 is going to be better than 2020. No, may we instead say that whatever comes, whether it's prosperity or whether it's poverty, whether it's health or whether it's sickness, whatever it is, we must have the word of God. I must have it. Yahweh is our hope, and he has given us his word to guide us, to direct us, to empower us, to keep us, and to change us in the days ahead. We would be fools to ignore it. It is a gift. So, what's your plan to dig into the Bible this year? Whether you're hoping to read through the entire Bible or maybe you're hoping to go through slowly, more methodically, a single book, or maybe you want to make it through the New Testament this year, whatever it is, let me encourage you to have a plan. Now, if you need help finding one, let me know. I'll do my best to help you. Uh, just in, in preparation for today, I was looking online. There, there, there are good plans good plans out there. I'd be happy to point you to them. I, I even ran across uh, a couple of plans for kids. Uh, if, if any kids in the room, if you guys want uh, a Bible reading plan, moms or dads, if that's the case, reach out to me and let me know. I can pass that along. But we need a plan to dive into the Word. We need to be intentional about it. If, if Yahweh's Word does what Psalm 19 says, let's not just hope that we fall backwards into it. Let's have a plan to get after it in 2021. Now, let me encourage you, too, to share your plan with your community group or with another brother or sister here and ask them to regularly check in with you and see how it's going. This is, this is not just a way to, to you know, keep you on track, to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to do. Um, it does do that. It is helpful for that. But it can also be so encouraging for us. We need to hear from each other. We, we can be an encouragement to one another as we share what God is doing in us and through us by means of his powerful word. So as you take in the word this year and as you experience its power and its benefits, talk to one another about it. Talk to one another about what you're reading and how God is changing you and working in your life Bear witness to what God is doing. It's encouraging to hear. So we desperately need the word of our God. It's better than money. It's better than honey. It's better than anything else the world can give us. And moreover, as David says in Psalm 19, 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned. We are lovingly pointed to God and warned about the consequences of rejecting him and going our own way. His word warns us by his word is your servant warned and keeping them there is great reward. In keeping the word we grow spiritually. We experience the joy of obeying God, of rightly loving him and others. There's reward in following God's life-giving word. But herein lies a problem for us, I think. If we're honest with ourselves, we haven't rightly kept Yahweh's word. We've all sinned and gone our own way. If you're with us this morning uh, or listening online and you're not a Christian, the Bible says that's true of you. You've sinned and gone your own way. You need rescuing. You need redemption. If you're with us this morning, here in this room or online, and, and you're following Jesus, this is still true of you. We sin. We reject God's word on a daily basis. We're sinners. We are righteous, but at the same time, we're sinful. And it's Yahweh's word that exposes this. Just like in verse 6, 
There is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. Nothing gets by the gaze of Yahweh's word. We're all exposed. Nothing escapes the searching word of God. Before it, we're all guilty. Now, that brings us to our third point, our response. Look with me at verses 12 to 14. Let's read, let's read 12 to 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Here, David recognizes, after speaking of Yahweh's word, his own sinfulness. He says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now, when David says errors, I think what he might have in mind is the fact that we commit sins unintentionally. The Old Testament uh, provides for that. And when David says hidden faults, I don't think he's referring to sins that we have committed and then you know, shoved under the rug. I, I, I think it's more likely that he's referring to sins that we commit but are blind to. And so what does he do in the face of that? He's prone to error. He's prone to hidden faults. If we're honest, we, we all must admit it. His response is, declare me innocent. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There's no other recourse. He needs Yahweh to declare him innocent of his sin. He continues in verse 13. He asks Yahweh here to keep him from presumptuous sins. Those are willful, purposeful acts of disobedience. If hidden faults are the sins that we are blind to, presumptuous sin is the sin that we commit on purpose. We know it's wrong, we do it anyway. And David, he says, keep your servant back from those. Let them not have dominion over me. He doesn't want to commit presumptuous sin against his God. And he knows that if God answers his prayer, verse 13, he will be blameless. He will be innocent of great transgression. Yahweh's word exposes us. We have sin in our lives that we might not even know about. It's one of the reasons that we need other people in our lives. And you, as the saying goes, suppose you can't see your own face. We have mirrors, so that definitely breaks down. But without a mirror, you can't see your own face. You need somebody to tell you what you look like. We need other people in our lives to help us see our hidden sins. Now, that can be painful, and, and we, we, we must uh, uh, speak to one another about our sins with truth and grace. But it is a gift from God to be awakened to our sin because when we are, by God's grace, we can repent. We can, by the power of his spirit, change. The word exposes our sin. But moreover, I think as we come to the end of this psalm here, I think we must recognize the fact that we're all guilty. We stand guilty before Yahweh. And so then we're left with the question, well, what then should we do? How then should we respond? Well, a few things. First, remember that Yahweh's word is good. Yes, it exposes our sin, but again, that is a good thing. How else can we be reconciled to our creator? For David, the word told him about Yahweh's character and Yahweh's ways and Yahweh's promises so that he could in faith say to God, declare me innocent from hidden faults and trust that God hears and responds. For us, we have even more 
revelation. We have the whole sum of Yahweh's instruction and and what does this word say? What does this word tell us about our sin? Yes, there's certainly bad news here, but there's also a lot of good news. This word tells us that we are born in sin, that we are separated from God, from Yahweh, from our maker. We need to be redeemed. We need to be forgiven. We need to be declared innocent on our own and our own strength. That's never going to happen. So if you come to the Bible and if you read what God requires, if you read God's law, if you read his commands, and if you try to just muster up the strength to do it, you're never going to succeed. In fact, and, and I listened to a sermon where um, it was by Tim Keller and he mentioned this uh, this week. He pointed out how if you try to live that way, what's going to happen is the word is going to cripple you. It's going to be a weight that you cannot bear if you read it like that a list of do's and don'ts. If you do enough right things, you're gonna live, you're gonna make it. If you don't do enough right things, you're gonna die. You're gonna be judged and forever cast away from God. If you read it like that, it's a weight that you can't bear. It'll break your back. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what it communicates. Listen to this. Um, I pulled this book. Actually, I was thinking about it, and I pulled it out of one of the classrooms, uh, kids' classrooms this morning. I've mentioned this before. I love it so much. It's called The Jesus Storybook Bible, Every Story Whispers His Name. It's by a woman named Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's written for kids, but I'm telling you, it's good for adults. So, um, yeah, I would encourage you to read it. Listen to how she summarizes what the Bible is all about. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it, They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but, as you'll soon find out if you were reading this story Bible, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose, presumptuous sin. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is, most of all, a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible, every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. That's what the Bible is. So don't hear that and, 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 and diminish or downplay the rules or the commands like the precepts of the Lord. We need to hear it. They're good. They're good. They're life-giving. We need to hear what Yahweh says, what he instructs. But don't miss the grand purpose of the story of this book, of this word that God has given us. And what it's communicating is that, as, as, as people like Tim Keller have pointed out, you are more sinful and flawed than you ever could imagine. But at the same time, if you're trusting in Christ, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared believe than you ever dared hope. That's the message of the Bible. When we read it, when we read God's word, it is a loving, gracious thing that God exposes our sin. He shows us what we're like. He shows us our face. When we read the Bible, we also, though, are pointed to our Redeemer. God doesn't just expose our sin and leave us. 
We see our sin and we see our Savior, Jesus. So David can end in verse 14 and say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Like a sacrifice, David wants what he's saying, what he's meditating on in his heart to be acceptable in God's sight. May it be so for us as we echo uh, the, the, the cry of Psalm 19. Creation does speak a word, but it's not enough. It tells us there's a creator. He's powerful. He's awesome. But we need more. Yahweh's word gives us more. It is life-giving. It is enriching. It is exposing. It is good. It is transforming. Let me end with this. So for Christmas, my family, uh, we worked on in the month of December, uh, memorizing uh, John 1, 1 to 18. Now, our purpose in doing that wasn't necessarily that everybody would finish. We wanted to focus on John 1, 1 to 18 for the month. Listen to what John 1, 1 to 18 says. I won't read the whole thing, but just some of it. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. But the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, verse 17 says. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We have in the Bible a good, good word from Yahweh. We also have in our Savior the word. Jesus came and perfectly showed us what God is like. And he lived a perfect life where we have all sinned. He died a substitutionary death on the cross. It means he died in the place of everyone who would trust in him for forgiveness. And God raised him from the dead three days later. And now the promise for, every, for everyone is that if you turn away from your sins, if you forsake your sin, if you reject it, if you reject your rebellion, if you stop trying to be your own God, if you stop trying to just think that you're going to be righteous on your own by following the commands in this book, if you come to God with the empty hands of faith and trust in Jesus to save you, you lay down your weapons, he'll save you. He will forgive you. He will declare you innocent. He will give you power to obey and live a life that is pleasing to him. So let's be thankful for the word, our Bibles, the word, our Savior. So this morning... We are taking in communion. We do this. <clears throat> we do this on the first Sunday of every month, and gladly so. And what uh, better way to be reminded of what we celebrate and what we remember than Psalm 119? When we partake of communion, we are remembering. We are celebrating. We are believing. We are confessing what God in Christ has done for us. Jesus shed His blood for us. Jesus' body was broken for us so that we might become righteous. So, this morning, if you are a baptized believer in Jesus, 
If you are following Christ and trusting in him alone for salvation, we welcome you to participate in this meal, this sacred meal with us. So on the way in, um, hopefully you saw it. There was a table in the back where you could grab um, the elements. It's like this. You saw it on the way in. If you didn't see it, um, we'll have a moment where you can uh, go back and get one in a minute. Um, but we're going to partake of the elements together. Um, before we do so, um, let me pray, and then we'll have um, a minute or so for reflection, and then I'll come back up, and I'll lead us. So let's pray. Father, we are, we are grateful for you. You are great. You are awesome. You are majestic and glorious. You are forgiving and gracious and merciful. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word in which you tell us these things about yourself. We are grateful that you have not left us to simply look into the sky and attempt to discern what our maker is like, but you gave us a word. Lord, we are grateful that you sent us the word that Jesus came to do for us and our salvation what we could not, that he lived a perfect life where we failed, he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And so God, we thank you and we celebrate today. Lord, I pray that you would give us all uh, ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive your word. May we all leave here this morning treasuring your word more than we did when we came in. When, may we leave here this morning thinking of your word and saying down deep in our hearts, I must have it. Lord, we need you to work that down in us by the power of your spirit. And we pray that you will. We trust that you will. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.